Do you invest in ETFs? Whether you're thinking, what in the world is an ETF? Or you're looking for the next opportunity to add to your portfolio. GlobalX has you covered. From big tech to bonds and bars of gold, GlobalX offers a wide range of exchange-traded funds. Go beyond ordinary with GlobalX ETFs. Visit globalxetfs.com.au. That's globalxetfs.com.au. Hey there, here's a quick note. This podcast contains general financial advice only. That means it's not specific to you, your needs, goals, or objectives. So don't act on the information until you've spoken with your financial advisor. You'll find our full disclosure, disclaimer, and link to our financial services guide in the show notes. Lisa, thanks for taking some time to join me on the show today. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Owen. Great to be here. Yeah, um, it's always a bit of fun when I get to chat to someone who works at Magellan because I just... I think that the, the the fabric in which the kind of process is stitched is really interesting and it really resonates with the way that I invest. And um, today we're going to be talking about payments companies. We're going to be talking about high quality investing and what that truly means. And we might tie it off with some risk around that as well. But normally I'd start the show with some icebreaker questions. Uh, I've got them actually at the back end of the show. So I'm, I'm eager to get to those. But the thing that I really want to jump into in the first instance, is this idea of quality investing and the way you do that as it relates to payments companies. Now, I'm fascinated by this, like electronic, digital payments, all of it. I love it. So I am hoping that we can go on a bit of an exploration and just explore why payments companies fit within that criteria of quality as you define it. And then maybe we'll, we'll go back and forth from there. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, no, I love talking about payments. I've been at Magellan for uh, coming on eight years now, and I started covering payments two to three years ago, and it's just been so interesting, like the the web that payments are. Um, yeah, we'll, we'll have a great t- chat today. Um, so I might just start at the beginning on, like you mentioned, Magellan and quality. So I think it's important to really just kind of set the scene on what quality is and why it's important. Um Quality is a term uh, that gets a little overused maybe in investing. So I think it's really important to focus on, well, what is the definition of quality? Um, and then on the flip side is how is that definition implemented? Because that, that that practice part um, at Magellan, it's something that is really important to us. And uh, hopefully you'll see today uh, why that's the case. So when you're thinking about quality, you can have a standard definition. So the more kind of quant index approach, where they're just looking at historical data, um, be it ROI, um, sorry, return on equity or stable earnings uh, or leverage. Now, this is a like, data is important. We need to look at the past, but in isolation, it can be a little bit backward looking. Um, and something that you might find interesting here is Coinbase actually did make a quality index. Now, some people do view crypto assets as something to invest in, but when we put our Magellan lens on, uh, we don't view that to be uh, quality. And a big part of that is because we're always looking at the future. Um, And when we look at the future, uh, we find it hard to look at a crypto asset and think, okay, well, this is a quality industry because we, we don't know where where that's heading, um, uh, that crypto assets, they're not currently being regulated. What are their competitive advantages? So really hard to, to, to tell. So when we put our definition, uh, our hat on and Magellan and what's important, there are many things that we're looking at and that's really the Magellan DNA. Um, so those that have followed Magellan for a while, you've probably heard some of this, but it's really important uh, to, to keep refreshing it, I think. So what we're really looking for is those unique attributes 
that enable a company to sustainably earn attractive returns over the future. So the difference here, we're not just using that historical data, we're looking at the industry structure, we're looking at the company and thinking, well, how will that perform uh, as we go through time? What are the competitive forces? So some of the factors that we're looking at are their moat, which we'll talk about um, in a little bit. What's their trend? It's the business risk, agency risk, and then those ESG risks and opportunities. So we're asking ourselves these questions of what are the barriers to entry? What does competition look like? What's the industry structure? Do they have scale? So these are really important questions um, that we're asking ourselves to do that deep dive research. Um, and then we have our investment oversight but hopefully when you get the sense of those questions you can't just go to a data source for that you actually need to get into the weeds you're looking at annual reports you're talking to industry experts um, we're debating it internally because it's there's no simple answer to what makes a quality company um, now there's lots to unpack here but I think what's actually really important is well why should you actually care as an investor Right. There's where we're just like we mentioned the word a lot in quality, but there's like, why do you actually want to be invested in a quality company? And when we're thinking about quality and why is it that we spend so much time defining what quality is, it's because they're in our our world. There's we view there's three factors and reasons why that you should be looking at the underlying quality attributes of a company. So the first one is that you have greater conviction on the sustainability of the earnings for that company in itself. Now, I think it's always good to just reflect on yourself and work out, well, like, what does that actually mean? So I like, imagine most people listening, you either have car insurance or maybe home insurance, that's giving you certainty about your cash flows. So then when you think about that company example, if we can have conviction uh, in cash flows of a business, that gives us greater certainty and we're happy to pay more for that and that should be generating us value. Second principle as to why we think quality is important uh, is that quality companies, their earnings, typically speaking, are going to compound over time. So this is generating that attractive and sustainable return uh, that will generate the, sh the shareholder value. Now, compounding is something that I think we kind of throw around quite a bit, but how often do people actually think about how important compounding is? And I think we take it for granted because it's really in our lives from such a young age. Like think about school, for example, like you learn something during the day, you go home and you do some homework and the next day you build on that skill. That's compounding. Like I used to, to, to do triathlons and that power of compounding is so important. It's building that muscle memory. There's no way you'd go in and do a 12-hour race um, without having done the training, doing the practice, building. And it works exactly the same for a company. So when a company, they're generating revenue, generating profits, when they reinvest back in the business, they're building the strength of the business, which will then compound and lead to those greater returns. So it's really interesting in the values that, um, that quality brings out. And I think the, the final thing to really bring out here is it enables you to invest through the cycle. Now, a quality company are those that have those more sustainable cash flows that we've mentioned, which means that 
when you have a downturn, they're more likely to, uh, to, to perform through it. And we've really seen this in the latest cycle. Um, buy now, pay later companies are just one example, um, like your Zips and your Kleiners. And they've had a, a bit of a, a tougher time versus your incumbent fintechs like your Visa and MasterCard. And that's because they the strength of their business isn't as strong um, and they've had to, they've not, they don't have as strong a customer network. They can't spend as much on customer acquisition and they're not able to grow the way that they used to. And the share price has really reflected that. So quality is really important. It's something that as an investor, you should be thinking about and asking the question of, is this a quality company? So you, you mentioned the idea of the sustainability of earnings, and I'm glad you brought in the, uh, the history of running triathlons. I find that with compounding in particular, that it's more that kind of the, the, the part where people tend to underestimate is kind of like the, the five to 10 year window of compounding. So people have a pretty good idea of like short-term compounding and that's maybe relating to your buy now, pay later example. Like they grew really fast in a very short period of time, but did they have staying power, which is where your idea of sustainability of earnings come in. So I'm just kind of curious how you think about like the, the length of compounding and how important that is. Yeah, absolutely. So I think that's when you put those kind of three metrics that I that I mentioned there all together, that is really that ability to invest through the cycle, which gives you that power of compounding. Because like when you think about a strategy in a company, most strategies aren't about, well, what are we doing next week? It's how do we invest in the business over the long term? Well, when we're looking at a company, that's what we're looking for. It's how do you invest over the long term? And so you need to give time for that investment to actually play out. Uh, and Visa is a great example of that and how they've been able to achieve that over time. So if you look at the last 10 years, Visa has, and I'm going to get muddled the stats up a little bit, but it's just because they're so phenomenal in what they've been able to do. Um, they've more than doubled the number of volumes that they process on their payment networks, and they've more than tripled uh, the number of uh, card users, and I think it's nearly triple in terms of the merchants. So that's not something that you could do over 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 one year. Yes, the, the share price will improve over one year as like an increment of that, but it's the compounding on the compounding that has made Visa what it is today, which is that largest payment network um, that's able to innovate, uh, withstand competition um, and makes it the strength of business that, that it truly is. And I think it's about 19% um, annual returns that it's had over the last 10 years. Um, and that's the power of compounding and that strength of the network that's just giving that perpetual flywheel. Mm. That's really interesting. I love Visa as a case study, uh, but also MasterCard and to an extent Amex as well. But I'm curious. Okay, so we've got this like quality framework that we're talking about. Um, across the, the core series, across the funds that you run, um, they're, they're like they have a range of different sectors and industries embedded within the fund. But I'm curious, even when you identify these types of industries or companies, how do you go from, okay, payments seem really attractive. Like how do you identify that in the first instance and then get down to, oh, well, Visa and MasterCard are a good expression of that. So like filtering the universe is basically where I'm kind of going is like, how do you identify them? Yeah, look, there, there is no short answer on filtering. It's uh, We're not using like an historical data filter on how do we determine which company to invest in. A big part of it is that research DNA. Um, so it's becoming an expert in the payments industry. It's we're understanding what's the industry makeup, what's the industry structure, who are the different participants um, to then go down the, the funnel of, well, 
which companies should we actually be investing in within payments? Because you will have winners, you will have losers, you'll have those that are just like, yeah, they're doing an okay job. Um, and it's not until you get into that nitty gritty and understand what the industry is until you can actually pick out who are likely to be those structural winners. So we spend a really long period of time when we're starting on a new industry doing that deep dive to, to understand, well, what company is likely to benefit from this structural growth tailwind? Mm. So, yeah, like when, when you're looking at payments, like you think, well, okay, well, we're, we're moving from cash to digital, so there's there's this rising boat. Um and yeah, everyone will, will win a little, but then you can you've got that the Visa Mastercard opportunity where you can you can win a lot. So I guess when you think about like the moat, which is a key input into the quality kind of spectrum, um, say like buy now pay later companies, which um, seem like a bit of a fly by night uh, kind of theme at the moment. How do you kind of determine that V like? How, in the, I guess the, the the ecosystem overall, how did you determine that Visa and Mastercard were strong franchises, where those buy now pay later companies weren't? Like, how do you look at the competitive positioning in the industry? Yeah, absolutely. So let, let's let's really step back and think about Visa and Mastercard and what makes them a high quality business. Um, so just as a kind of bit of background, Visa and Mastercard, they're really, in our opinion, the only truly global open payment networks. Um, they're in over 200 countries. In the case of Visa, it has close to 4 billion uh, cards that use the network. It's got around 100 million merchants. Now, before we get into the like the, the fun technical stuff, which I'm sure you'll, you'll all enjoy, let's just think about our own consumer experience um, and how we use payment networks. Um, and this really does feed into why we end up liking them. So you can use your card anywhere in the world with a Visa or a MasterCard. It's very simple. You tap it or you put your pin in. It's this ubiquitous, fast payments experience that is basically enabled us to no longer need traveler's checks, to no longer need to need to carry this wad of cash everywhere we go. It's just you're able to tap, you're able to go. Um, you can use it online, you can use it in store. Um, and then you have those fraud protections. Like this is really impressive um, when you think of your own payments journey um, since we had that Dolomites account and then what's happened over time, your evolution with money. And I think it's safe to say Visa and MasterCard have actually been the backbone of that entire payments journey um, for everyone in the world, right? It's really impressive. So what have they actually done and how can we distill well, what makes them quality? Uh, the first thing is network effects. This is like, I think the term perhaps even was introduced because of Visa and MasterCard. Like they really are the foundation um, of what a network effect is. And what it means is that every participant benefits, and that means your consumer, your merchant, and Visa and MasterCard, they all benefit uh, as the network grows, right? So this is really important factor, and that's what's allowing for that compounding because as the business grows, everyone benefits and the, 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 the boat rises really well. The next part, um, I'd say the feature is the, the barriers to entry. Um, and for Visa and MasterCard, they are extraordinarily high. Now, for the consumer, a payment's really easy, like we just spoke about. But the actual payments web is really, really complex um, because it's complex at the, the national level, um, but then you go to the global payments level and then you have regulation on top of that. So 
when we're looking um, at the web that they're connecting, you have those billions of consumers, you have the millions of merchants, you're then connecting them to thousands of banks. Uh, merchants all have acquirers that help them collect uh, the, the electronic payments. So there are so many different angles here, um, which makes it really complex. And then on top of that is what are they actually trying to achieve um, with respect to, the, to this payment? Um, and it's to achieve that simplicity, Visa and MasterCard need to be able to authorise a transaction in seconds. So that's making sure that it's the right person that's trying to make the transaction and that's legitimate, but also that you have the right amount of funds. So that does, it's not very simple what they're trying to do and they've mastered it. They are able to, they do like, I think it's about 60,000 transactions a second, Visa does or more. So it's, it's really impressive what they've been able to achieve and no one's been able to replicate it why it's really complex they have and it's that power of the network effect which makes the barriers really hard because if someone new comes in they've got to spend so much money to try and create that consumer and merchant experience um, that visa and mastercard already have so why would you as a consumer pick the the new payment option when your visa and mastercard to you is free um, you just tap, go, everything works, you've got your consumer protections. Why would you try something else that may not be as good? Um, and they've just got to spend so much money to do that. So competition isn't really there. You've had um, other networks like your Buy Now Pay Laters, you've had crypto, try and think about it a little bit. Um, but it's been really hard to create a competitive environment around payments. And that's partly because these remarks have been really ending that economic moat through that continual innovation um, and driving the the cash digitization i think a point here that's uh that shouldn't go shouldn't go missing is um like debit for example so you think about the australian um example here's with fpos so probably 15 years ago fpos was a term that we actually would have used a lot that oh, i'm using my fpos card blah 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 like their debit network here Visa and MasterCard with innovation came in with their debit rail um, that had through the chip. Now, how often now are you actually putting your pin in? You're tapping. Um, now it's more expensive for the merchant, but it's merchants, but the, that consumer experience and the speed in which you can, can transact has just, it's making the competitive environment harder and harder, um, which just strengthens the moat, the resilience, and then those shareholder returns um, for Visa and MasterCard. And when you put all that together, they have scale. Uh, and Visa, would you believe, has the highest uh, operating margins uh, in the S&P 500. So that's the 500 largest US companies. Visa's number one with respect to its operating margins. And that's really um, that strength of moat that they have. And they're continually being able to defend that through innovation and um, execution on the strength of the product that they have. I, I've got two questions around kind of, so like I'm, I'm very much of the opinion that these are wonderful businesses, yep. but I always love to invert that and ask myself, yeah. like, what are the risks? So I guess the two things that come to mind for me through, through the lens of risk are one, like government regulation, whether that's at the country level or whether it's like a bigger thing, like international payments level. So regulation would be one bucket. And then the other one would be, I think you've already kind of crushed it a bit, which is like, do you think that like the blockchain system of payments, digitizing payments is a genuine threat? So we've got regulation in one hand um, 
and then we've got blockchain on the other. Yeah. Oh, this is a great question. And I think you might want a job at Magellan, uh, Owen. Like this is exactly how we think about, about quality. Um, and we're very focused on that downside protection. So risk, like while we're thinking about what's the opportunity, it's really about what could undo our thesis. Um, so let's start on the blockchain one because it's it was it was quite it was quite a fad, like less so now, um, about five years ago, about well, how can blockchain disrupt all of fintech basically and like everything, like blockchain's the world. Um Look, we're not concerned about blockchain. Um, I think in terms of a technology that it will be used, that's basically a, a fancy way of calling it that uh, uh, digitised uh, database, essentially. So there will be use cases for it where it makes a lot of sense. Um, but payments is unlikely to be that use case uh, in the near term. Um uh, mentioned before the number of transactions that Visa can do that over sixty thousand per second, and that's how many that you need to be at that level for a global economy to run. Um, blockchain is doing uh, around ten, I think we're probably up to now per second. So you you can't you you can't run a global economy on the pace that uh, that the, the where the technology is for blockchain. It may get there in time, but uh, it's not been a, a fast evolution so far. Um, and then the other part is the importance of those safety protections. It shouldn't be underestimated um, the strength of Visa and MasterCard that's linked to its ability to authorise the right, authorise transactions for the right person um, and also protect merchants from fraud. Um, there was a really good example in the US. So they developed um, a real-time payment network that was allowing peer-to-peer -peer transactions. It's called Zelle. Um, so all the banks got together and, and developed this, this network and the fraud rates on there have just been incredibly high. Um, it's not easy to do and that's one of the competitive advantages of Visa and MasterCard is that they are part, they, they're facilitating transactions globally. So they're working out, perhaps it's in, uh, in London, that there's a particular kind of scam or fraud happening and they're then able to use that across their whole network to prevent, to prevent fraud. So it's a really important um, kind of feature that these companies have. But onto the risk that we are really concerned about, um, that is regulation, as you mentioned. So payments are essential for day-to-day -day life um, and for a functioning economy. So it's no surprise that the government is looking at payments uh, with somewhat of a microscope, uh, sorry, with somewhat of a microscope. Um, now, when you're thinking about what the government's role is, one, they need to have a functioning payment system. Um, they've benefited significantly from the digitization of payments because you're moving transactions from a cash economy, um, which can be hidden, into a digital economy, which is harder to, to hide. So governments have benefited a lot from this. And you've seen India go through that big push on demonetization to try and drive their digital economy. So they do like Visa MasterCard. So they're not fully against it. But the part that they don't like is that they don't have control over their payment system. These two large American companies, um, the Australia, we're, we're reliant on them. So there's that element, um, which we did see uh, in Russia last year, where they turned the switch off. Global, um, the politicians globally decided to, to say, well, no, you can't facilitate transactions. And that just really brought that debate up again of, well, we don't have power of our own payment system. Um, so they're concerned about that. And the other thing that they're concerned about is competition. 
So we went through some of the factors before on why Visa and MasterCard are so strong um, and that's those barriers to entry and that competitors can't come in. Um, it's so expensive for these competitors to come in and try and replicate the networks. Um, they've tried, they've failed, and so now we're actually seeing governments um, build these competing networks um, to Visa and MasterCard. So there have been these real-time payment networks available around for decades, but we're really starting to see governments think about it in a lot more detail on, well, how do we build our own network that can effectively compete with Visa and MasterCard? So we view that as a longer-term threat um, for, for Visa and MasterCard. It's something that we do a lot of work on. We read a lot of documents that come out from central banks. Um, and a big part of that is that consumer proposition that we've kind of been been talking about. Um, and I suppose I should, should premise that it's the, the main threat here is on the debit network, not on the credit. Um, the central banks that are building these networks, they're highly unlikely to get in the business of offering credit um, to consumers. So it'll be all about the, the functioning of, of the debit system and the risk that that is to, to Visa and MasterCard. Can you just define the, the, like the key difference there? So like credit versus debit. So a lot of people know that they can just tap the button on the terminal or whatever. But what does that actually mean? Yeah, so for your the payment networks, it's virtually no different. There's, there, there are differences. Payment, uh, Visa and MasterCard do not offer credit. Their role is to facilitate a transaction between the consumer asked, asked to buy, the merchant is selling something, um, and it's the transferring of funds from the consumer's bank to the, the merchant's bank. So when it's debit, you actually have the cash in your account. Um, so Visa and MasterCard need to make sure that you have the money to give to the merchant. When it's credit, uh, Visa and MasterCard are checking whether or not you haven't reached your credit limit, but it's the bank that is offering you that line of credit, not Visa and MasterCard. The uh, very cool thing about their business is that they're not taking on the credit risk. They just clip the ticket uh, on every transaction uh, that comes through their network. So they're kind of like a bit of a railroad or a toll road um, for uh, consumer payments. I've got one more question before on payments before maybe we can move on to other quality industries and companies. But the, of, so those two risks put to bed the blockchain and regulation. Are there, is there anything else that comes to mind? And maybe there isn't right now, but is there anything else that comes to mind for you that you think that's a risk that people probably should be aware of? To be fair, regulation is the one that like if you're saying what keeps you up at night, it's monitoring what's happening with real the real-time payments uh, execution. Because um, a big part of that is, so it's not just build a network and they come. It's, it's far from that. You need to develop this consumer experience, but you also uh, almost need to force the usage or the network that's built needs to be so good that it has those fraud protections. It has the ability to refund. Um, it connects globally for people to want to switch because the merchant wants you to switch because it's cheaper. And I think the reason why I'm bringing this up again is because you've said Brazil is a really interesting case study here where they built their real-time payment network, but the uh, government, central bank there, mandated that it was being to, was to be used. It mandated that banks implemented this. It mandated for merchants to start using this. So we got the take-up. 
So that's what that's the interesting thing. It's all about the implementation of it. Um, we don't think in the US that the Fed is going to come in and be so draconian on how this must be used. Um, it's slightly different different economy, and it, it, it's unlikely. But um, they're they're doing their best to to produce a product that. Um, has the opportunity to compete, but that's going to take some time. There was an update this week um, from a conference and it just, you need to get everyone connected. That's how these networks succeed is when you have all the connection points and that's going to be a five to 10 year journey. Mm, right. Um, well, that's good news for Visa and MasterCard shareholders uh, for now. Um, I'm curious if we step back from payments for a little bit and we think we, we talk more about the quality uh, aspect of your investing I know there are like quite a few companies that are included, particularly in the core series at Magellan. Um, I'm curious, are there companies through that research that is done by the broader Magellan team and then eventually make their way into those core series funds? If there are industries or thematic sectors, however you want to define it, that continually surface in terms of like high quality and, you know, durable moats and these types of things, like are the industries or trends and what I'm going for here is like if people are listening to this and they're looking for companies to buy in 2023 or even put on their watch list, what have been historically some of the more fruitful parts of the market? Yeah, no, absolutely. It's, it's a really good question. So um, I might just provide a little bit of backdrop on, on the, what the core series is to, to kind of frame it. Um, so the core series is built on Magellan's DNA, which is essentially that definition of quality that we've spoken about and then that approved list of companies. So when we're deciding, when we get to our approved list, um, it's that hard work that we've done in understanding each of the individual industries. So at each sector, we view there are quality companies, that you've got the, the good and the bad or the winners and the losers that will be there in each of the, the individual sectors. And that's because we're trying to identify, well, which ones have that favourable industry structure, those um the, that customer advantage where the switching costs are really high that the customer won't want it to, to move over or there's pricing power. So I suppose when we look at the index and uh, where Magellan's approved list is perhaps overweight, um, so that they're the sectors that we really value highly versus others. Um, the software sector where we're overweight uh, versus the index, consumer staples um, and consumer discretionary, they're three categories that we're very much overweight. Um, and I'll kind of talk through, well, what is it about those sectors that we like? Um, and then what we are underweight is in REITs, um, energy, uh, and then on the healthcare side. Now, there are quality companies in each of the industries, but it's those attributes where we're looking for that sustainability of earnings, um, that there can be differences in industry structure or um, the, the consumer proposition that then means that one is perhaps... Um, has those higher quality attributes than than the other. Um, so maybe software is a really good example. So here we're looking for um, companies that have that strong customer relationship and awareness, but it also has that stickiness. So Microsoft, I think, is a is a really good example here, where probably everyone on the audience at some point has used Microsoft Office, um, and for us to switch to a different software provider. I think most would be happy to just pay more versus switching, right? Because we all know, we've all got our shortcuts in Excel. We know how to use PowerPoint. And it's that stickiness of the consumer combined with the, the strength of product, the Microsoft, like they, they continue to innovate um, that keeps you in the ecosystem. 
I imagine most of us, uh, we would, when we were told to work work from home, either the few weeks before or the few weeks after, Microsoft Teams just kind of pops up, right? So it's it's their ability to continue to innovate and keep you in their ecosystem that makes software um, a really uh, sticky uh, business and a high quality business. Um, we've also uh, mentioned consumer staples. So these are very similar to, uh, well, sorry, they're, these are products that we need to buy in our everyday lives. So we're thinking about um, our, our Nestle's or our Procter & Gamble. Um, so we're always buying these products, but not all consumer staple companies uh, are equal. So here we're looking for companies that have that strong industry positioning. So it's those top one or two brands um, within each of the different industry sectors. Um, it's their, their having the that size and scale means that they can continue to reinvest which means that they're able to meet those new consumer preferences, um, be it the, the change in uh, preference towards um, uh, non-dairy, for example. So it's it's that ability to change in a, a, a fashion that enables you to then continue to maintain that consumer basket. Um, and it's that flywheel that Nestle and Procter & Gamble have that make them really valuable companies because they're able to offer a range of products and high quality products consistently, they've got the scale, they've got the distribution. Not all consumer staples are equal. Um, and so we do have a, a preference for them in the, the portfolios. Some that we don't invest in uh, is energy. So we exclude, we actually exclude energy companies from our uh, approved universe. And a big part of that is we don't define them as quality. So their share price is moving primarily due to commodity price which is not linked to that underlying sustainable business model. Um, so yeah, so they're just a few examples of, of ones that we like, ones that we don't like, um, but it's really looking at each of the ind individual sectors and finding that high quality company within the sector. Mm. Yeah, I do really like it. It's like almost like there's no shortcut for like a true expression of quality. Like we try to find statistically, you know, we could run a screen and say, well, of all companies in the United States over, five billion market cap what's been the average return on invested capital maybe that's a proxy for quality but it probably it doesn't have that forward looking element which you're after uh, which really comes from like the hard and the soft what i would call hard and the soft kind of i guess factors that go into investing the, the quantitative and the qualitative and um so many people just rely too heavily on one at the expense of the other um there is a, a, a question that i've got here around risk um, because you're not only, you know, looking at, through the lens of like quality international like global companies, you also spend a lot of your time thinking about ESG. And so I'm curious, and maybe this is a way to tie that in, how you think about risk and maybe the way you might think about this is like, how do you think about it personally or at Magellan, however you want to frame that, against maybe what we're taught through ac academia I know, you know, you've got the PhD, you've studied this stuff for a very long time. So you're probably well placed to answer this question, even if it is a bit nuanced. Yeah. So risk is, um, I think there's there's a few lenses that you can you can look at risk from. Um, and the first element is the, the I'll maybe call it the investing risk. So that's really, and we achieve that through defining the universe. So when you look at a, uh, the investable universe, there's, there's thousands of companies, but we bring that down to around 200 companies at Magellan and that is through that definition of quality. So we're hoping to get, we're trying to weed out the companies that we don't think will will be 
survivors. These are the companies that we think have that kind of 10, 20, 30 year trajectory. So we're trying to remove that element of risk in our portfolios. Um, so we're universe, really important in, in, in that. But on the business risk side, this is a really interesting part. Um, and it's the timing of it is, is very difficult. But when we're looking at business risk, we again have that forward-looking approach where we're looking, we sit back and we look at a company and there's several factors that we're looking at. Um, there can be industry-specific. Industry um, so here we're looking at its exposure to macro, to geopolitics, but can also be company-specific. So some of the business risk that we see, and this is one of the things in, in tech companies, for example, um, is our ability to forecast. So if a company's disclosure, um, yes, it does meet all of the, the regulatory requirements, but if they don't give you a lot of granularity on that revenue line, then your ability to forecast um, and then have certainty uh, on those revenues is quite low. So that's an element of business risk. So we actually break it down into the different layers of business risk um, and then come up with a score essentially um, so that when we're doing the portfolio allocation, we know what we're, we're getting into and we can weigh up the risk reward for each of the, the individual companies. But I think the important thing when you're thinking about business risk and the, the, the hat to put on, on is how does this impact cash flows? How does it impact valuation? Um, and ESG risk is a great example of when we're looking at risk is that focus on materiality. Um, ESG, there is like tens to hundreds of risks that uh, companies could be exposed to, but it's really focusing on, well, what matters to the individual business? Um, and that's how we, we frame it and we keep coming back to uh, on a day-to-day -day basis. Mm. I. There is a kind of a bit of a fun question that I have, and it probably ties into this uh, as well because it maybe gives us an illustration of this. So if we just exclude payments, let's imagine they're not existing for a second. Um, there, is there a company that you can think of that you think that this is one of like the best one of the best business models you've ever come across? Because then that might be an illustration of and a, and, a, and a, I guess a case study for people listening or watching who think, well, I can go and pull this apart and maybe see what the Magellan team saw in this myself. Um, so I'm just, that's kind of like a cheeky question of like, what's the best business model? So not necessarily an investment. We're not here for fishing for investment ideas or whatever, but more so the business itself. Yeah. I think you frame that well. It is a cheeky question because uh, we're in the business of, of identifying, or sorry, investing in a portfolio. So we're looking for many great business models. Um, and so it's real, a, a big part, well, one of the factors a lot of uh, often is the industry structure that we're looking at. Um, and so just some examples of, of that kind of quality business model, uh, you could be looking at a regulated utility. Um, so that in some jurisdictions, they are regulated in their earnings, but they're monopolies. So that's a really favourable uh, industry structure, which then leads to a favourable business model. Um, you've got ASML. It's an, a leading manufacturer of, the sem of semiconductor lithography equipment, uh, market share of over 80%. So again, a really favourable business model. Um, but I think one, if we're going to talk about one and drill down into it a little bit more, um, I might talk to the index provider business model. Um, so MSCI is a really good example uh, of this business model. Um, their primary business is being uh, index, uh, but they also have these ancillary services that relate to um, analytics uh, and then also sustainability and ESG. So 
What makes uh, MSCI kind of unique and why we really like it uh, is that index part of the business. And what's really cool about it is once you have an index, you need to turn it into a benchmark. And once you've done that, you're essentially a monopoly provider. All right, so let's just think about that a little bit. So um, the it's basically a duopoly. So there's S&P that have indexes and, and MSCI. So in the US, S&P is the, the benchmark for the US market. Think about the S&P 500. Um, but then on the global sky, uh, scale, MSCI is that benchmark through the MSCI World Index and then the MSCI Emerging Markets Index. So once you become a benchmark, all of the um, assets that are linked to it, be it through passive investing, be it through a fund manager that's benchmarked to a benchmark, um, they get a fee for that. So they're clipping the ticket on the growth in equity markets, the growth in debt markets, if they have a benchmark linked to it. So these are essentially monopolies in those individual benchmarks that they have created. Um, they have pricing power, they have scale, um, they're really incredible businesses uh, with respect to what they have created. And what's interesting is how sticky these businesses are. So as a fund manager, for example, once you've set your benchmark, it's really hard to change it. You'd actually need to go to each of your clients and say, well, we're changing our benchmark. And when you do that, it, you, you're forcing a conversation that begs the question of, well, why are you doing that? What's wrong with the current benchmark? So no one changes. Everyone stays with their bench, with their current benchmark and then MSCI or S&P benefit from that. Um, they're also really scale businesses, um, as I mentioned. So yes, you have that initial cost of setting up the business, um, but that every incremental dollar that comes through essentially drops to the bottom line. Um, the margin for MSCI in their index business is over 70%. Like the wow. economics are truly incredible for these businesses. Um, so, yeah, that's kind of just examples of, of an industry structure um, that we really like. We, we view these, that's a kind of a, that the higher most businesses. Um, but the important part is that management execution as well. So we've spoken a lot about quality, um, but a big element of quality is also how are management executing uh, against this? How are they making sure that they're defending against their moat? Um, and that is that continual innovation um, that you need to be looking for uh, in a business to make sure that they are defending their moat. Now, it needs to be, it can't just be capital allocation for the sake of capital allocation and just spending money to try and create a new product. It's, it's, it's building on the base that then leads to that compounding. So it's like a product that you can sell to your existing network that's value-add. Um, that's where you really get that compounding. Yeah, I love that. That um, That's one of the areas where I see a lot of investors, even if it's not in like established companies like we're talking about now, in like small or mid-cap companies where there's like the variant perception comes from just even looking at like the segment lines of a business and looking at, well, they have this industry, you know, they're awesome at this, but maybe they could do this. And then that management identify that. And I think the key signal there is like those transcripts and those quarterly calls that management have where, where they say, well, we've tried this with like an MVP, like a minimum viable product in this adjacency, and it seems to be working. And I find that just as like a general rule, like a general kind of like rule of thumb is like, if you actually get down to that level of granularity, you can start to unearth some of these things. Yeah. 
Yeah, no, it, it's a really good point. It's really important. Like when we're looking at a company, when they do an acquisition, um, often we like the bolt-on type ones. Um, so like Visa and MasterCard are great examples of that, not to, to keep coming back to them, but they, um, they're companies that will buy a, like a software solution, for example, like if they can see in the market that someone's doing a really good job um, on a particular fraud technology, they will buy that. They will then put it into their network and then they sell it to all of their customers because that will enhance the um, the proposition for the, the individual customers. So that's an example of a really great acquisition where you can add it in. Nestle does the same thing. They often acquire new uh, brands within the, um, the, the food and beverage space. And why it works when they pick the right brand is that they've got the distribution. They're able to like buy a new new brand of, of, of biscuits or um, whatever it may be, and they've already got the distribution into Coles and Woolworths. They've already got the scale and they can, they can plug it straight in. Um, like it's a really important part of, of their business. It's not like they're going and now um, they've bought a business that's linked to hardware. Well, if that's not in their distribution network, then they've got to, they've got to build that. So it's trying to really build within that circle of competence that will then enable the compounding and that flywheel to, to take hold. Mm. Oh, I love that. I love that. Um, so I've got a couple of questions left, but um, now I've got my, my icebreaker questions that happen to come at the end of the show. There are, there are three of them that are quite, uh, quite a bit of fun. So I know you love food and travel and all these types of things, as well as, you know, previously running triathlons and all of that. So the, the hard hitting questions I've got for you are as follows. Uh, where is the best food, I would say food joint or like eatery in Sydney for under $50? I travel to Sydney regularly, so I'm, this is selfish <laughs> of me. I am asking this for myself. All right. Well, uh, I like cookings, but I'm not going to, I'm not, 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 uh, I love the chat, but uh, I'm not going to okay. say that. Uh, <laughs> um, okay. So I would say the place called Bart Junior, it's in Redfern. Um, okay. They have uh, an amazing, so if you want to really keep it to under 50, their family night on Tuesday is phenomenal. They will cook you homemade pastas with amazing sauces, fresh ingredients, um, definitely like made with passion. Okay. I, I like I said, I, this is purely for me. I've got my notepad and pen right here, <laughs> so I just wrote that down. Uh, so who does better coffee, Melbourne or Italy? See, this this one is tough. I'm, I'm Italian. However, I, I do like milky coffee, so... If I'm drinking milky coffee, it's Melbourne. If I want uh, a black coffee, I think the Italians definitely definitely do it better. Okay. This is going to be the in the, the, in the nightly news over in Italy and Rome. This will be making headlines. <laughs> my, so. cousins, my cousins won't be very happy. They won't be surprised, <laughs> but they won't be happy. Okay. Last question, and this is to tie it into investing, is what's the best food-related business? Now, I would say you're free to take off your ESG hat here and just say, you know, if it's junk food, it's junk food. But... You answer this however you want to. I'm just curious, what's the best food-related business that you've come across? Yeah, I think, well, we'll, we'll bring ESG in because, uh, like, we, as we mentioned, ESG is really important to, to talk about um, for all businesses because it impacts their cash flows. Um, may not be a risk today, but over the future, it's definitely really important. So we'll, we'll, we'll bring that back in. Um, but I think the restaurant companies, uh, so that's your McDonald's, that's your Yum Brands. These are really interesting companies. Um, and in our opinion, they're very high quality. So they've been set up as a franchise model. So what that means is that they license essentially um, the, the use of their brand. Um, the franchisee will benefit from being part of, of the, the larger the business. But 
Uh, McDonald's and Yum take a percentage of every transaction. Um, they also have pricing power. So this is really important, especially as we've seen the last two years uh, in the inflationary environment, that they've been able to, to clip the ticket on every transaction. Um, but importantly, they don't have, they've got some wage inflation. Obviously, there's people at head office that are running the business, um, but they don't, they're not linked to all the employees at the individual restaurants. So that protects them a little bit. But they also have scale. So this gives them that competitive advantage when it comes to sourcing. So really important to, to get the right ingredients consistently and at the right price, which then enables them to deliver that consistency um, in product that these fast food, quick service restaurants are, are known for. Now, you did mention ESG, so we like be remiss of me as an ESG analyst uh, not, not to talk about it. Um, ESG risks are part of every business. So I think it's important for all of us to take off that hat of, oh, McDonald's is in fast food, the, the food isn't, um, isn't healthy, it mustn't be uh, investable uh, from an ESG lens. Um, quite the contrary. So McDonald's is actually like as the largest restaurant, it has a lot of opportunity to drive changes, um, be it with healthy habits, be it with packaging um, that then have such a great influence around the world. So some of the small things they do is when you're going onto the auto, the auto order, the online order, not going to the person, um, when they're bringing you beverages, for example, they put the diet drinks and the water at the top of the list because people aren't as likely to scroll down. So just a small change like that, people will be picking a healthier option. They've also moved to having salads, to having grilled. Like So they're, they're offering options that are enabling them to appeal to, to all consumers. And they're also focused on reducing the salt, the sugar in all of their products. Um, and they're uh, investing in that so it doesn't impact the, the, the quality. I think a really interesting one for them, um, let's on the packaging side, is the French regulators um, have put in a rule that if someone's eating in store, you cannot use any disposable packaging. So that's meaning they have to move back to plates, move back to forks. They've even got this like plastic red little bucket that your chips come in. But what's cool about this is that McDonald's have invested in their, their French business to enable that um, more sustainable dine-in option, which then means in time they're able to roll that out uh, around the world. So just think of the amount of packaging um, and that investment that they're doing that will then have that cascading effect um, throughout their entire business. So there are things they can do better, but absolutely they're investing to try and drive change um, and have that positive footprint um, and improve their cash flows in the future. I did not know that about the uh, putting the, the healthy stuff at the top of the automated um, ordering thing. That makes a lot of sense though, because I do see it every time it pops up. But one thing I did remember every time I've been to Macca's over the last little while is everywhere I go, basically Macca's has run out of uh, Coke, no sugar. It's just like yeah. people have made that complete switch <laughs> to Coke, no sugar, yeah. uh, which is a good thing. I'd, I'd assume over time. Um, and I, I, I love these examples because I think it's a delicate balance in franchising. Like they, they say that the best way to get rich is to use someone else's money to do it. And franchisees do that, you know, for these networks and the, the key point is that they've made it sustainable. So yeah. throughout all levels of that ecosystem, whereas some businesses like here in Australia, we have like Gloria Jeans, which was owned by Retail Food Group, which was clearly there was way too much pressure on a kind of weak 
yeah. stack in that 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 network, and that fell apart pretty quickly. Um, so I do really like this, uh, and I can see that it's in the the top holdings. Uh, at least McDonald's yeah. is um, in the international core series fund. So um, there, I will direct people, anyone listening to this, to go online and to check out. Uh, the landing page for the core series funds it's the, the three funds but uh in particular the international fund if you want to see that list that i'm talking about i'll put links in the show notes to that so we don't need to worry about any of that just check that out i think it's a great uh resource and i think the team you're putting together and the, the funds are, are a great resource for anyone to look at if they're looking at well how do i f- even think about identifying these companies in the whole universe of companies throughout the world who has done the work well, Magellan's team's done the work. And so you can go and you can look at these companies and, and read about them and so on and so forth. But the final question I might throw in is the, like my, my little one to, to end the show, which is um, what's one thing you believe about finance, business or investing that few people would agree with you on? Uh, I'm glad you gave me this one in advance because I, I really thought about like, <laughs> what is the right way? Um, what What is at that point? And I think the, the conclusion I got to is a lot of people think about what I'm about to tell you, but it's how we actually execute on, on it um, that I think we could improve on. Um, so that really is to look through the noise and be patient. Um, it's not necessarily an, an easy thing to do, but um, I think coming back to, to Visa again, um, sorry to be the broken record on this, <laughs> but it's, it's a really interesting way to, to, to think about it through this example. So you might um, have known that in 2021, uh, Amazon um, was trying to threaten Visa and remove it as a payment method. Um, They started out with the UK, Singapore um, and Australia. So it was really this battle of Goliath versus Goliath. You had the largest payment network versus um, the largest e-commerce business. Now, there was a lot of noise at the time. Like every week or second week, there was a new news article that was coming out about the power that Amazon has. Amazon's going to, um, like, it's, it's threatening Visa. Visa's economics are, are going to be in trouble. Now, th- there's an element of maybe that could have happened. But I think you, when you step back and you think about, well, why is it that I like Visa? And it's the strength of the network. It's that consumer experience that's really important, right? Um, so... Despite all the noise and Amazon trying its best to switch people, um, and that was they were incentivizing. And I think in the UK they gave people twenty pound mm. to actually put in um, a new payment method, right? But in the end, it they they worked they worked things out, and I believe Visa is the winner uh, in this scenario. And that's because uh, Amazon needs Visa, right? If that is your your payment method that you choose to use, where you know you have the fraud uh, protections. People don't want to switch. They use that card everywhere. So Amazon, whilst being the largest e-commerce provider, doesn't have the power to say, you consumer, you can't use this, this payment method anymore. So the reason why I bring that in this kind of be patient and avoid the noise is if you've done the work and you have conviction um, in this business, in the case of Visa, that the strength of its network effect, it's it's be patient because it actually presents a buying opportunity um, or a time to top up in our case, um, that then leads to those strong shareholder returns. I love that example. Um, and I'm glad you brought up that because it was like a true, at the time it was perceived as a true threat to Visa's business model. Um, and if Amazon can't do it, well then who else can is I guess the question. So if someone, if Amazon's knocking on your, your castle door and you've got the moat surrounding it and they can't get across, like they're trying to get in, they can't, then I think that says something about the business model. So um, now this has been heaps of fun. 
I mean, there's so many takeaways. I've got my notepad here. It's already full, <laughs> this whole page. So I really appreciate you taking the time to, to join me on the show today. No, thanks, Owen. It was really great to chat. For more than a decade, I've been hunting for the best investors and their methods, strategies, and tools for investing. After years in the industry, countless books, a few degrees, and 1,000 podcasts and live shows, I've rolled this accumulated knowledge into something called Rask Invest. If you've ever heard me talk about a core and a satellite, active and passive, true long-term compounding, or you simply want to know exactly how I would invest... Now is your chance. Rask Invest is our new investment service, designed for all types of investors who want professional management of their core portfolio at a low cost from a team they trust. Rask Invest helps you automate your wealth creation and passive income. Simply click the link that says Invest with Owen in your podcast player to join one of our live platform walkthroughs or book a call with us. You can also view the Rask Invest PDS and TMD and get invested with me.